Welcome to the Earth Kingdom Prairie Home Companion, a bi-weekly podcast where two nerds and a newbie watch Avatar The Last Airbender and provide all their thoughts, feelings, and opinions. I'm Kelly. I'm Mike. And I'm JJ. To recap, previously on Avatar The Last Airbender, we wrapped up Season 1. With the Water Tribe under heavy attack from the Fire Nation, Aang was able to enter the Avatar state and fend them off. Admiral Zhao was destroyed in battle, but Iroh and Zuko escaped with their lives. Although the Northern Water Tribe sustained heavy losses, including the death of their princess, who sacrificed herself to save the Moon Spirit, the people are now ready to rebuild not only their own lives, but those of their sister tribe in the South as well. With proper tutelage at last, Katara has become a master waterbender, and together with Sokka is ready to continue to help Aang as he travels the world to master the Four Elements. All right. So we are starting season two. We are, finally. Uh, Yeah. Um, We're going to do two episodes today. The first two, The Avatar State and The Cave of Two Lovers. So why don't I just jump right into the recap of season two, episode one. All right. The Avatar State. Our heroes are journeying to the Earth Kingdom so that Aang can learn earthbending from King Bumi. They are to be escorted by General Fong and his soldiers, but the general has other plans. The war is ravaging on, and in in the time it will take for Aang to master the elements, many innocent people will die. Aang possesses incredible power, but he can only access it in the Avatar state. Despite Katara's disapproval, Aang feels the weight of his responsibility and believes he must try. When Aang realizes that he can only enter the Avatar state if he fears for his life, he tries to back out, but General Fong is not willing to give up so easily. He provokes Aang by endangering Katara, and it works. Aang enters the Avatar state and takes the general down. The trio will proceed to Omashu without an escort. Meanwhile, Zuko is visited by his dangerous sister Azula, with news too good to be true. His father wants him back home. Iroh's skeptical, but Zuko's hope is a precious living thing, until the moment Azula crushes it with the truth. His father doesn't want him as anything but a prisoner. Very good. Yeah. <laughs> you should write copy or something, Kelly. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, all those years in publishing. <laughs> it had to be good for something, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It was all building up to this moment here. It's true. Yeah. This is the Just pinnacle of my life. <laughs> For this podcast. (laughs) Season two of Avatar. That's what it was. (laughs) Oh, man. So, yeah, this is the season opener of season two. How do you guys think it works in terms of a season opener? I think it's pretty good. I mean, it does, again, some heavy lifting in terms of giving you a little bit more information about what the Avatar state is, um, how Aang is able to get into it. And I think it also, again, gives you a little bit of structure for what's going to happen this season. Like, last season was waterbending, and this season he's going to learn earthbending. And I think, Kelly, you will find this season much better paced than season one. (laughs) Oh, I'm very excited, because really, (laughs) the first season wasn't about him learning waterbending at all. Yeah, they kind of glossed over that. (laughs) Yeah, they did skip over that, huh? (laughs) So I'm very excited that this will be slightly better paced. Yeah, I think you'll see it. I, at least I think 
his earthbending skills. Like you see him struggle with it and you him learning it and, and having problems with it. So, um, but yeah, but that's getting ahead of ourselves. So. I think even just in these first two episodes, they do a nice job of like showing you, yeah, Aang doesn't know how to do this yet, but here are plenty of examples of it happening in the world around them. And it works in a bunch of different ways so far. You know, you see the military version, you see the, uh, whatever they're called, badger mole version. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, I thought it was a pretty good season opener. I agree. Um, you know, I think it it very clearly kind of recaps for us where we are, who these characters are, and what they do, and how far we've come. And you know, it it kind of sets up um, where we're going with the story. So yeah, I thought it was a pretty successful season opener. Um, in the very beginning, we start with Paku and the rest of, or not maybe not the entire, but other members of the Northern Water Tribe who are on their way south to assist the Southern Water Tribe. And they are about to part ways with our heroes. And there's this kind of like... Wizard of Oz sort of a yeah. thing where yeah. uh-huh. I was thinking like in Lord of the Rings. Uh-huh. Yeah. <laughs> Paku's like bestowing each of them with a gift and Katara gets this little canteen of um water from the Spirit Oasis to keep with her and Aang is given some scrolls about water bending. Is yeah, that correct? more water bending scrolls. Mm-hmm. To help him um continue to master that element. And then they get to Sokka and he's like Good luck, Sokka. (laughs) Just kind of walks away and leaves him empty-handed, and we get the little wah-wah, Sokka. Sad Sokka noise. (laughs) 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 Womp-womp-womp. Yeah. But I thought that was really funny and really cute. And, I mean, that's such an archetypal, you know, we already said Wizard of Oz, Lord of the Rings, like that, the bestowing of gifts upon our heroes. You know, Dumbledore does it with the trio and his will and everything. It's like, here are the tools you need to succeed in your journey. I mean, that Um, stuff goes back to, like, Greek myths and everything, you know? mm -hmm. They were always given magic shields and swords and boots and stuff. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so I thought that was a fun little way to open it. Um, And then they go to this, you know, I I don't know if the city or the fort is ever named, but it's a place in the Earth Kingdom um, with this general who is supposed to escort them to Omashu, and he really has no intention of ever doing that. He wants to use Aang. He, He basically wants to weaponize Aang and, you know, to use his avatar powers as a weapon against the Fire Lord because he believes that Aang has the power now to defeat the Fire Lord, as was demonstrated, you know, in the siege on the Northern Water Tribes. And Aang explains, you know, I don't really have any control over this. I don't know how this works. I don't know how this happens, you know. And Katara is really unsettled by the whole thing because it is difficult to watch Aang be in so much pain and be in such a frightening state where he doesn't resemble the person that she knows anymore. Um, and they actually have a really mature conversation about it. Yeah, where, I know, right? <laughs> yeah, like really where she kind of says to him, you know, this is really frightening. And as someone who cares about you, it's really difficult for me to watch. And I don't really think you should do it. And Aang says, 
thank you so much for telling me that. I appreciate that, but this is something that I feel I need to do because I have this responsibility and these people are counting on me. And Katara says, you know, well, if that's really what you feel, then I can't be a part of it and I can't watch you do this to yourself. And I mean, it's a sad conversation, but it's very mature. It's like everyone's being really honest and forthright with their feelings. And um, yeah, it was really, it was really great to have that conversation included in the show. I really liked that part of it. Yeah, there's no defensiveness on either part of them. You know, they're not really judging. Like, they're like, yeah, I see your point, but this is what I think. And they just kind of, you know, go with it. It's also, it just brings home again how much the weight of the world rests on Aang's shoulders when he says, I'm already a hundred years too late. And I was like, oh, God, you're only 12. (laughs) You have to worry about this. My God. And the sort of decisions that he has to weigh, you know, do I go into the Avatar state, which is this big uncontrollable thing, or do I let more people die because I haven't caught up? It's taking too long for me to learn how to bend all the elements. So, you know, this is really weighty decisions for a child Mm -hmm. to make. Absolutely. Um, You know, and the general does everything he can to kind of twist that knife of Aang's guilt a little bit, you know, and is like, people are dying with every day that goes by, and you could put an end to this now. And Aang does eventually agree to try. And, you know, it's at first it's kind of comical, and they go through this, like, range of different things. There's a tea that just really ends up making him super hyper. Yeah. <laughs> is this the Avatar state? Is it working yet? Is it working yet? I wrote down that was tea by Walter White. <laughs> <laughs> Pretty much, yeah. Um, and so there's the tea, and then there's, um, you know, they do like a big ceremony with symbols from each of the elements, and, you know, they throw this essentially mud on him, and he's like, this is just mud. <laughs> right. I, don't, I don't feel anything. <laughs> you know, nothing's really happening. And then he sneezes, and it goes on everyone else. Mm-hmm. So good. Yeah, it's a really funny. So it it starts out, you know, pretty pretty comical and lighthearted, um, you know, despite all of Katara's reservations and Aang's guilt. You know, they put a lot of humor in there as they're trying to figure out the secrets to unlock, you know, this Avatar state and bring it forth. And meanwhile, Aang is having a lot of dreams. He's having dreams about times he's gone into the Avatar state. Um, and in the dreams, it's almost like he's attacking himself and there are more nightmares than dreams. They're really disturbing to him. And after a certain point, he wakes up from one of them and says, you know, I don't, I don't think this is really what we should be doing anymore. And so he tries to back out and basically explains to the general, you know, I'm not comfortable with this. This isn't what I want to be doing. We're going to stick to our original plan. Um, you know, let's go to Omashu and the general, won't accept that as an answer and attacks him because it, everyone begins to realize in that moment that the thing that brings forth the avatar state is when Aang fears for his life. And so the earth nation soldier, the earth kingdom soldiers attack him on the general's orders. And it's really, you know, it, it, Aang is refusing to fight at first. You know, he's like, I'm not your enemy. I'm not going to fight you. But they're coming after him and they've got, you know, they're all earthbenders, the soldiers, and they're 
essentially, I guess it's like these big stone discs mm-hmm. that they're like sending after him. Yeah. Mm-hmm. They're like big weights, but they're the size of like monster truck tires. Yeah. They're also so, shaped kind of like coins. Right. Um, if you've seen like Chinese coins, they kind mm-hmm. of look like that, like the little hole in the middle. Yeah. So. <laughs> yeah. And they're like rolling them after him and, you know, th- so they're attacking him and he's being really evasive and he's basically says to the general, you know, you can't fight forever. And the general's like, well, you can't avoid this forever. Um, and so the general switches tactics and attacks Katara and ends up sucking her underground. And it's when her life is endangered that triggers the avatar state in Aang. And so he, you know, wipes out all the soldiers. I don't, I don't know that he kills them necessarily. We don't really know, but he, you know, he removes the threat. (laughs) Yeah. He destroys a lot of buildings and pretty much trashes the fort. Mm -hmm. And you know, the general in this moment is like, triumphant. He's like, it worked, it worked, and now we just have to figure out how to control you, and this is great, you know? And Sokka just kind of comes by and clocks him on the head and knocks him out, and is like, does anybody have a problem with that? And all the soldiers are like, nope. Yeah, that was one of the lines I wrote down, was like, anybody have a problem with that? And they all shook their heads no. No. Uh I love that ending, too, because it's just, you know, it's this big, dramatic moment, and then Sokka comes up on the bird horse thingy, and just, Mm -hmm. bonk! Just yeah. very simple, practical way to end the problem. It's just bonk. <laughs> and that's exactly what Sokka calls them earlier, too. He's like, good bird horse thingy. <laughs> Which I really like because there isn't always an obvious, like, animal combination. They're not all, like, turtle ducks or, you know, koala otters. Like, sometimes they're a weird horse bird thingy. Yeah. Very elegant naming conventions yeah. in this show. Um, yeah, and oh, so one part that I also missed is that, so when Katara's life is endangered and it triggers the Avatar state in Aang, his spirit, um, leaves his body and meets with Roku. Avatar Mm -hmm. Roku comes in on his dragon and tells Aang about the Avatar state and what it is. And... That it was all of it was really fascinating to me. So the Avatar state is a defense mechanism that all of the past lives that the Avatar has been kind of resurface and coalesce, and the Avatar, when in that state, is imbued with all of their powers at at full strength. So it's like this amplified. Um, you know, sense of power that's being channeled through all these previous lives and all of that knowledge that the avatars had in that different, those different lives, which on the one hand makes the avatar incredibly powerful, near invincible, but not quite because the, the other side of the coin is that if the avatar is killed while in the avatar state, he will not reincarnate. That would be the final, the the final avatar, the end of that lineage. And so the stakes are really high in that case. You know, it's incredibly risky for Aang to go into the avatar state because if he dies in that state, that's the end. And so that I thought was really fascinating. And I, I was really, 
uh, riveted by that and surprised by that. I didn't, I hadn't given that any thought, you know, quite frankly, I think at the beginning of this episode, when they were talking about the Avatar state, I kind of thought it it was going to be this long drawn out thing where we weren't really going to find out a lot about it forever and ever. And I'm sure we'll continue to learn more about it, but the show has not necessarily been super great about providing a lot of information up front. And so I was really pleasantly surprised that we got a really good piece of important information right away in terms of this. Yeah, this goes back to the pacing issues with season one that I think they've learned from. <laughs> that you yeah. know, even just these first two episodes, they the even though the second episode's much more of a character building type of one, even that has plot ramifications. Mm-hmm. So they are moving the story forward at a much faster clip, I think, and they're parsing out the information in, in much better ways. Yeah. So I thought that was really cool. And two, when we when Roku is explaining this to Aang, we kind of get glimpses of um, some of the previous avatars. I think we see Kyoshi, the mm-hmm. earthbender avatar. We see another woman who is an airbender who's kind of blowing these whole fields and forests down. Uh, we see a waterbender um, who's the first waterbender that I think that we've seen. So that was really cool, too, to be able to see you know little glimpses of these past lives and some of these other benders that we haven't seen before. So I really liked that that whole thing. I thought that was really great. I don't think I'm spoiling anything with this, but I'm pretty sure that waterbender is the one from the story with Ko the face stealer. He is. He is. Kuruk. Yeah. The one, yeah. you know, when Ko says, you know, I stole the face of someone you loved and then ah. shows that face. And yeah, that's I think that, that was Kuruk's love. I think that was one of the avatars. Uh, yeah, so... And you get their names. I think later on you get their names, because you saw Kyoshi, the other airbender is Yangchen, and uh, I think the waterbender is Kuruk. Um, so, it's not the last you see of his past lives, by the mm-hmm. way. So I, I would assume that that would be a con- recurring sort of a thing throughout the show. Um, so, yeah, I really liked that. I really liked this plot. Of course, there's you know, the whole Zuko plot that we haven't talked about yet, but I really liked this. I thought it moved pretty well. I thought it was, you know, funny and interesting. Um, I don't have too much to say about it because, of course, the rest of the episode is about Zuko, who, of course, all my notes are about him and his sister. (laughs) But is there anything regarding this plot that you guys wanted to tease out that we haven't really addressed yet or any thought like impressions you had of it overall? I thought, I think it's probably worth mentioning. So the first like two thirds of the story, general Fong seems pretty friendly and upbeat and like he is driven and he uses the ending of suffering as like leverage to get Ang to think and do what he wants. But even from the moment they land, they like, they get off at off of Appa and He's right there to greet them, and he knows all of their names, including Appa and Momo. He butters up Katara by being like, and mighty Katara. <laughs> yeah. and, and she eats it up. She's like, oh, I like the sound of that. Mighty Katara. You know? And like, I did like that a lot. Yeah, and that's the thing. is like That makes you feel good. Like Even as a viewer, you're like, yeah, mighty Katara. But like that's a guy with an agenda from the moment they said hello. Yeah. And I like this too that the we have two we have two antagonists in this episode because we got rid of Zhao in the last season. So obviously we have to set up 
kind of a bigger villain. Um, and we'll get to Zula later. But in terms of what I liked about this is that, you know, they've set up the Fire Nation as the bad guys with a couple of exceptions. You know, you have Iroh, you have Zuko and, and all those people. But I like this because this is an Earth Kingdom general who is supposedly on the right side of morality. Um, and he does technically, you know, he wants what's right. He wants to end the war. But he's definitely somebody for whom the ends justify the means. And, you know, the fact that he's basically willing to, well, not that he does, but basically willing to kill a child to get Aang into the Avatar state is pretty ruthless. And I think it kind of like the really gray morality of you, you could be working to do something good, but the means by which you do them are, are less than good. And I like that. It gets very, very nuanced there. I also like the fireworks yeah. when they first came in. Yeah. They were earthbending like explodables into the air and they became fireworks. I loved that. Yeah, that was great too. <laughs> yeah, I really liked it. I thought there were a lot of um, good things. It was a nice, it's a positive way to start the season, I think. Um, especially when we get to Zuko and what is going on with him. Um, so... Of course, this entire plot is heartbreaking in just about every way. I'm going to try not to cry again, you guys, but no promises. <laughs> um, so basically, where season one left us off is that Admiral Zhao's been destroyed. Most of the Fire Navy um, that he was commanding has been destroyed. And Iroh and Zuko managed to escape, but they're alone. They have... You know, no soldiers, no men, no supplies. They have nothing. And they're traveling, you know, alone. And it starts... Does it start with Iroh getting the massage? Yes. That, which is hilarious in its own way. Um, But, you know, so Iroh's getting this massage and he's feeling all relaxed. And they're, like, kind of some little, like, beach town. They, like, go, like, looking for shells and things. I think they're actually back and in the Fire Nation. Okay. Um, Yeah, because later they decide to leave. Yeah. They're like, right. if it's between Azula and the and the Earth right. mate, like army, we'll take the Earth we'll army. Take the Earth <laughs> army. So they're just kind of hanging out on their own for the most part. And um, Zuko is getting really frustrated because he feels like he's treading water. Nothing's happening. He's trying and trying and being shot down at every turn. And he has, you know, kind of this list of things that he wants. And it ends with, I want my father to not think I'm worthless. And yeah. it's also the three-year anniversary of his banishment. Right. Which is what has his brain churning like this. Right. And it's just like, I'm, I'm starting to like tear up now, even though I just said that I wasn't going to. But it's like, I want my father to not think I'm worthless. Like, I am a lucky person with wonderful parents who love me and who have always let me know that they loved me. Um, and I can't imagine the devastation that you would have as a child. Because again, when he was exiled, he was a child. Like he might be a teenager now, but it's been a couple of years. He's and like, even as he a was teenager, like I think he was like yeah, 13. Yeah. Like even as, as, as a 16 year old or whatever, like you're still a child. <laughs> And to not only 
to not only have it be true that your father thinks that you're worthless, but to know it to be true that your father thinks that you're worthless is just the most heart-wrenching thing. And so when Azula arrives, well, she doesn't arrive right away. So we meet Azula formally for the first time as she's on her way to go get Iroh and Zuko. She's been sent by her father at the end of season one. That was kind of our closing image was, um, you know, we close on the Fire Lord telling her to go retrieve her uncle and brother. And we meet her on a Fire Navy ship and she is, you know, dueling, practicing, you know, just kind of going through her paces. And she has like two Auntie Iroh's whose names we don't know, but essentially two um, older women who appear to be twins. Um, creepy who, twins. Creepy twins. I mean, they're only Iros in the sense that they're the old person kind of shepherding her along. They have mm-hmm. none of Iro's warmth or humor or geniality or likability or anything. They're super creepy. But Azula is super creepy, and so it's a good match. Um, and so here we open up, like, this This is the section of the podcast where Kelly has lots of questions and doesn't get it and is <laughs> frustrated. So we've reached that segment, so everybody can take a drink, because we're there. Um, so she is wielding lightning. Yes. Lightning isn't fire, guys. <laughs> and I don't know if we're just going to pretend that it's fire for the purposes of this show or if there's like another type of bending or power that as of right now has not been addressed I don't know what's going on Um, it's really cool Azula is badass and I like her a lot although I don't like her the same way I like Zuko I like her and I think she's amazing and terrifying and fantastic and the the lightning stuff is cool, but I don't get it. Why don't you think it's fire? What is it if it's not fire? It's it's a it's electricity. Like like lightning can cause fire, but lightning isn't fire. Is it I mean, really? Are, I, like really? Is that the explanation we're gonna go with? I mean, if you're going to go with fire being heat and energy, heat and light, that's what lightning is. Yeah, but, like, I don't know that I'm ready to go there. Because, like, remember the whole steam thing? I'm still not on board with the steam thing that Iroh does. That is not fire. <laughs> so, I get, I mean, like, okay. Like, if that's our explanation, that we're going to call it firebending and that this is her particular discipline within firebending is that she specializes in lightning. I mean, cool. It's not necessarily that she specializes it. Although, you know, I think they mentioned last season that she's a firebending prodigy. Mm-hmm. So she's an incredibly powerful bender, and she's very good. And you will notice, too, that she does firebend normally, but her flames are blue. Yes. Mm-hmm. Have we seen that yet? Because yeah, I think... it's at the very end, when she's fighting Zuko. Um, okay. There are scenes where she's you know, kind of throwing strikes at him, and the fire that comes out is blue. All right, I missed that. Which is, I guess, supposed to be a nod to her name, right? Azula. Azul, yeah, for blue. Yeah, Azul, In Spanish. Yeah. Right. Um, oh, 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 yeah. There's also things, I think, like blue being the hottest color. In, in mm-hmm. the, well, uh, white technically is. But, you know, like blue and white being like so much right, hotter than... Right, the flame, yeah. 
I do like that that reveal that her flames are a different color is at the very end because you don't actually see her bend anything but lightning until that point. You just see her bend the lightning. And apparently I completely missed it because I watched the episode twice and I didn't catch that. So, <laughs> so I missed that entirely. But like, okay. Like, I mean, if that's what the show is going to give me, I'll accept it. I'm officially registering my complaint. <laughs> I mean, like I said, what else but, is fire but heat and light and energy and... What else is lightning but heat and light and energy? They might both be plasma. Like, if you get fire burning hot enough, I feel... Well, I mean, yeah, I'm not, I don't we know see that, physics, but... Go ahead. Because we see that, too. Like, at one point, it might have even been... I can't remember it, where in the show it is, but at one point we see... I think it's when Roku is telling Aang about the Avatar state. I think we see a firebender who does has volcanoes and is bending... The fire, the right, molten right. lava. And to me, too, I would be like, isn't that more earth than fire? <laughs> we, <laughs> like, will get to the, the we will get to the lava. We will get to okay. the lava at some point. Okay, <laughs> okay, that's fine. But, like, you know, so so the whole lightning thing, as cool as it is, and it is cool, um, I, I was just kind of like, what are we doing here? <laughs> they'll, they'll get to an explanation about that. Like, eventually, okay. there will be, they will lay out for you how they want you to view it. Okay. And you can accept it or not, I guess. Yeah, I mean, you know, I'm still going to watch the show, so I'm not <laughs> I'm not quitting the podcast, you guys. It's fine. <laughs> <laughs> but I was. I was kind of like, what are we doing here? So we meet her, you know, and she's bending this lightning on this ship. And um, she does this incredible, you know, thing with the lightning. And the evil aunties are like... Um, almost perfect. One only one hair out of place, and she's got like a little hair <laughs> hanging over her forehead, and she's like, "Almost isn't good enough," and she, you know, freaks out. So we have a young prodigy perfectionist on our hands. Um, she is a great character already in this introduction to her. It's a really strong introduction to her. I think out of all the new characters that we've kind of met, this is a really solid introduction into who she is. Um, I like her a lot, but not the same way I like her brother, where I love Zuko because I, I, I just love him and he just takes my heart and yanks on it. And Azula does not, as of yet, I'm not going to say that it's not possible for her to get some of this later, but as of right now, um, you know, there, there is no, there is no vulnerability there. There is, you know, she is just purely a bad guy and she delights in being a bad guy and it's delightful to watch her be a bad guy. Uh, <laughs> you know, it's kind of where we're at at this point and that could certainly evolve, but that's where we are now. But she, you know, is talking, so they're on the ship and the, the captain of the ship is, is saying that they can't go in because the tides won't allow them to. And she's like, I'm sorry, I don't, I don't actually know that much about tides, but maybe you could explain it to me. You know, are, would the tides hesitate to kill you if we threw you overboard? And he's like, uh, no. And she's like, well, then maybe you should worry less about the tides who've already made up their minds about you and start to worry a little bit more about me, who's still deciding. It's <laughs> <laughs> like, whoa! <laughs> It's awesome. It's I she's love this terrifying. She's like this terrifying evil girl child, and it's amazing. 
person. <laughs> it's, so, yeah. it's so funny because you'd mentioned like, I think very early on in this, in this last season, you're talking about, oh, we know Zuko's not the real villain because he's a child. And, and then in the spoiler section, I told Mike, I was like, well, she hasn't met Azula yet. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Who's the scariest 14-year-old on the planet. Oh, she's super terrifying. She's super terrifying. It's so great, though. And she's, oh, ah. But she's also realistically terrifying. That's the great Uh part about Azula. It's not like Zhao, who's kind of just like your ye old megalomaniac. Azula, she knows how to manipulate people. She knows exactly where to hit people where they're the most tender and vulnerable, especially how she manipulates Zuko into coming with her. Like, she could have just taken him and Iroh by force. Because she's powerful and she's got all the army and everything behind her. She could have just But she didn't in. want to. Exactly. She right. wanted to exert control over Zuko. She wanted to manipulate him. And that's exactly what she does. And I was just like, you are so scary. <laughs> yeah, it's super terrifying. So, she finally arrives with exactly the thing that Zuko is hoping for you know he wants his father to embrace him again and welcome him back with open arms and azula shows up right on time and promises you know that very thing and i it's also you know when we talk about manipulating her it's also really masterful the way that she does it because she does it in a really snotty way like she doesn't just like she's show condescending up. Right, like, she doesn't just show up and be like, oh, we all want to have you back, and we're so great, and come with me, because that wouldn't be believable. Right. (laughs) No one would believe it if Azula showed up and was just being nice to everyone. So she's really snotty about it, and is constantly like, I'm not a messenger, you haven't thanked me yet, what, you know, and is, like, snapping at everybody and just being really horrible about it, Um, which is extra brilliant, because it shows that she knows how other people think about her and what they expect from her. Um, You know, but she essentially arrives offering Zuko the thing that he wants most and he, he wants it so much that he believes it despite how improbable it is. And Iroh is skeptical and tries to talk to Zuko about it. Um, And Zuko lashes out at him, and I liked this moment because we get this scene a lot in stories where someone is is believing in someone or something that they shouldn't, and someone else tries to talk some sense into them gently, and the person feels threatened and, and lashes out, you know, and... Usually a lot of real damage is done in those moments, in the lashing out. And Zuko lashes out, and it's painful, and it's hard to watch, because we love Iroh, and we know unequivocally that Iroh has only Zuko's best intentions at heart. And so it's painful to watch Zuko insult him. But the insults that he gives, you know, I can't remember exactly what he says, but he's like, you're a lazy old man who's, you know, whatever. He Jealous off. of your brother. Yeah, jealous, jealous of, of your, your brother. brother. Right. Which 
may or may not be true. I don't know yet enough about Iroh and his relationship with the Fire Lord to know if there's any kernel of truth there or not. But it's not the most damning thing that Zuko could have said. Zuko could have said something about Iroh losing his son. Zuko could have said something else that would be unforgivable, that would open wounds that could not be healed. And he doesn't. He says mean stuff, and it's mean, but it's not... It, it's like a flesh wound. It's, it's not anything that is going to penetrate in really deep. And I'm so glad... Because we see Iroh's face, and we see, like, the hurt and surprise there, but it's it almost doesn't even read, like, his feelings are hurt so much as that he's he knows... He's disappointed in Zuko. Right! Yeah. Like, he didn't get through to Zuko, and he's disappointed. It's not about himself. And I loved that, because I feel like most times when we do this story beat in fiction, we go the other way, where we really wound someone, and we really cut them to the quick. And it it creates damage in that relationship going forward, even when the truth is revealed. And I'm so glad we didn't do that because Iroh, Zuko needs Iroh so much. We all need Iroh. I want Iroh. I know. I know. I know. We all need (laughs) Uncle Iroh in our lives. We do. Um, But I'm so glad that it, that it plays out that way, you know? And so of course there was never any question, but of course Iroh shows up the next morning, packed and ready to go. He is not about to let Zuko walk into this and when by the himself. Look at Zuko's face when Iroh <gasps> oh, shows up. He's just like, oh, you changed your mind. And just of course that, we like, knew, but like the hope on Zuko's face is like, oh, I didn't, I didn't fuck up. Right, <laughs> Basically, like that, I didn't fuck up, thank God. <laughs> yeah, like that genuine smile of like maybe I really can have all the people that I love love me back and like oh I know I know oh god um and so of course they're kind of walking up the plank to get onto the ship and it's lined with fire nation soldiers and Iroh is like constantly side-eyeing like waiting for (laughs) shit to go down essentially um, and they get up there, and Azula is welcoming them, and the captain of the ship, you know, is giving a report as to their status, and he's like, okay, you know, it's we're ready to escort the prisoners back to, you know, wherever, <laughs> and lets it slip. And the look on his face, how terrified he is when he realizes oh, that he screws up. up. <laughs> yeah. And they just shove him, she just shoves him overboard, and Iroh immediately goes into attack mode and just starts attacking people, and it's awesome. <laughs> and Zuko and Azula fight, and Zuko does these flame daggers mm-hmm. that are yes. awesome. <laughs> yes, I love those. <laughs> I knew you would love those. Um just so cool that he just he has the small controlled flames you know shooting out of his hands that are daggers and he's swiping at her and so she apparently does some fire bending in there which I missed but she um, kind of gears up to do this big lightning blast and Iroh stops her by putting his hand over hers and then I believe I'm interpreting this correctly, essentially channels the electricity through his body and shoots yep. it he out of his it, yeah. other yeah. hand. So that was really cool, <laughs> too. Not fire, but still cool. Right. 
not going to let it go, guys. <laughs> not going to let it go. Um, so the whole thing, I mean, it was just so great. And then they do escape, and Zuko cuts off his hair and wordlessly passes the knife to Iroh, who also cuts off a piece of his hair. And it's this very symbolic, like, not... not break with the Fire Nation as a whole, I guess, but, like, with the, the family, with the Fire Lord, with their, like, we don't belong to these people anymore. We are on our own. We are our own family now, sort of a thing, is how I interpret it. I don't know if you guys had different interpretations of that. I'm pretty sure you're right. I'm pretty sure this is something from Japanese culture where it was a gesture of, like, samurai cutting, you know, because they had that same, like, Top bun kind of thing going on that you see on like yeah like a top traditional most. I mean, it's just it was like it's like a traditional hairstyle for men of the nobility in East Asia, and so often when you had cultures be subjugated by another group of people, the way to humiliate them was to actually cut off that top knot. And I think this is their symbolic way of just like starting over basically we are no longer this is our old lives and we're we've cut them off and we're sending them like we you know throwing them away so it's that i mean it has a lot of deep resonance even if the meaning isn't whatever specific or particular i think we all get the basic gist that they are severing ties with their old lives and moving on right Mm -hmm. yeah so really great stuff like just really wonderful Zuko stuff in this episode. I'm always going to love the Zuko stuff because I just love him so much. Yeah, I love. I mean, it's hard <laughs> and not apparently to like I'm Zuko. just going to I'm just going to cry in every <laughs> uh episode from now on. I was on Twitter and I know that this is going to be airing long after um so my tweets will be buried by the time this airs, but uh you know, I was watching this episode, this pair of episodes over the weekend because it doesn't get much better for Zuko next time. <laughs> and, uh, I just I tweeted, uh, if anyone needs me, I'll be over in a corner sobbing over a character from a children's TV show forever. <laughs> just forever crying over Zuko. Um, yeah, I can't think of a single person that doesn't like Zuko. He's just so complex and, and just has such a rich, deep backstory. And, and they're so good at making you root for him. Just really good at making you sympathize and care and wanting the best things for Zuko. Um, so, I mean, like I said, I don't know anybody who doesn't like him. And if they do, they're just wrong. <laughs> ah, as we all pause to take uh, a sip from our respective drinks. <laughs> <laughs> um, Mike, was there any voiceover stuff in this one? I mean, obviously uh, yes, but anyone of note? <laughs> Yes. Uh, so first off, I'm just excited that I'll get to talk about Azula. Um, but uh, starting with the captain on her ship um, was played by an actor named Robin Atkin Downs. Um, he <laughs> he did a voice in Kingdom Hearts 2 and all the subsequent ones. He's mm-hmm. Luxord, which is, I think, one of the nobodies or whatever they're called. Mm-hmm. The clones of actual people in that game. Mm-hmm. Um, he yeah, did the a no bunch. bodies, yeah. Yeah, right, right. Um, he did a bunch of voices in Gears of War, uh, like the Boomer, the Cantus, Jack the Robot. He played George Washington in Assassin's Creed 3, and oh, my favorite uh, credit of his is 
Uh, do you guys remember the Jake Gyllenhaal Prince of Persia movie that came out a few years back? I never saw it, but I know of its existence. Yeah, I know so that it exists, but... Yeah. It was loosely based off of a trilogy of games. And yeah, I know the games, but I never saw the okay. movie. Okay, well, the second in that trilogy is the one where this guy voiced the main character, the Prince of Persia, which is also the most angsty game I've ever played in my entire life. <laughs> like, they take what is, like, happy, you know, fun, you know, magic and problem-solving stuff in the desert and turn it into, like, grungy rock noise and an angsty, angry prince, and that was him. Anyways... Next on the list, um, Kelly, I was actually wondering if you recognize the voice of General Fong. No, ah. the answer is no. I will ah. never recognize any voice. Apparently, I will just think everyone sounds like Matthew Broderick. Okay, well, <laughs> this guy sounds less like Matthew Broderick than the last time, but um, his name is Daniel Day Kim, and he <gasps> played Jin from Lost. Oh, I love him. He's yeah. in lots of stuff. Um, he was an angel, was also... too, and... yeah. Mm -hmm. He's great. Um, and he's on Hawaii Five-0, and whenever we get to it, you'll hear his voice on Legend of Korra also, because mm -hmm. he has a pretty good-sized role in that. Mm -hmm. The best thing about him was when J.J. and I were roommates together and we were watching Lost as it aired, was hearing J.J. critique his Korean accent and pronunciation as it went along. <laughs> <laughs> and it got significantly better over the six years he was on the show. But, like, the first, I would say, like, three seasons of Lost, I had to read the subtitles because I could not understand a single word he was saying in Korean. I was like... And Korean and, was your first language. Yeah, I know. Because she, the actress who plays Sun, is a, actually like a Korean actress, works in Korea, was in a lot of dramas. I think she was in a spy movie um, about North Korea at some point. So she speaks the language pretty fluently. So and then, But I think Daniel Day Kim was either born in the United States or came here when he was very, very young and never really learned to speak it. So it's so painfully obvious to me that he's reading the lines phonetically and has no sense of anything, anything. I just was like, I can't. What are you saying? Don't understand. <laughs> <laughs> but he did. He got much, much better like over the course of the show, like by the end, even though he still had an accent, like an American accent, like at least I could understand what he was saying now. <laughs> and it also sounded like he also knew what he was saying, which, which helps. <laughs> well, you'd think that after that long on a show, you would improve. So that's good. But it was really right. funny. I remember watching it with you and you just being like, what is happening? <laughs> like, what? Like how many seasons did, that was like seven seasons or something, right? You could mm -hmm. learn an entire language in seven seasons. Mm -hmm. Here you go. So what about Azula? Okay, so um, the actress's name is Grey Griffin. Um, she's been playing Daphne on Scooby-Doo for years and years now. Uh, she was Mandy in The Grim Adventures of Billy and Mandy, if you guys ever watched oh. that. Oh. She was Frankie on Foster's Home for Imaginary Friends. Oh, I love that show. It's a good show. And my personal favorite role of hers is... Catwoman in the Arkham video games. Okay. Because she's awesome in that. And also, like, just having that, like, because you can play as Catwoman in the second one, and it's just such an awesome change of pace from just being Batman. Like, even the controls are different, the way she moves, all of it is, like, noticeably excellent. <laughs> nice. But yeah, she's awesome and has plenty of other voice credits to her name. She's great. I mean, even all of the voice acting on this show is really good, but 
with her especially, she's got this like very like playful quality to her voice when she's yeah. threatening people's lives. <laughs> it's really I loved it. That, I thought it was really great. I thought the direction's so great because she's able to convey such menace behind such honeyed sweetness. It's just so chilly. <laughs> yeah, and that um, playfulness really kind of comes out in her role as Catwoman because, like, she has to not take things seriously even when, you know, bullets are flying. That's, like, the gig. Mm-hmm. And she really nails it. Nice. Yeah. I just love when she shows up and meets Zuko. She's like, hello, Zuzu. Yes. <gasps> Zuzu, I forgot. <laughs> Don't call yes. me that. <laughs> Zuzu. So good. <laughs> like, what a better way to just get under your older brother's skin than to just be like, hi, Zuzu. Mm-hmm. <laughs> oh, so good. And that's so right before good. she snaps at um, Iroh. Iroh, yeah. Showing us exactly what she's like. Mm-hmm. So good. It was a great character introduction. It really was. <sighs> Should we move on? Yes. Yeah, I don't think yeah. I have anything else. Oh, I do like, actually, that this season... One one more thing before we go forward. Like, clearly, it's a different season now. They've moved out of winter, and it's spring. And so everyone gets slightly different outfits. Like I did notice that, yeah. Sokka's outfit's a little bit different. And the scene, I did I think, not notice. Yeah, his sleeves are short. They're kind of, oh. like, mm-hmm. cut off here. Yeah. Um, and then... Katara's also, has, like, a wider band. Band across the front. Um, I think her pants are different and her shoes are a little bit different. Um, but I also just really like the scene. It's like a really throwaway scene where he's talking to Aang in the Avatar state and his hair's down. And he's yeah. just got this like surfer dude look to him. Especially because he's got like the bone necklace around his neck. And I was just like, oh. So I like that they're kind of changing up people's, you know, appearance a little bit. They're recognizable. Like the silhouette's still recognizable, but... I like that they're they're not just sticking to like one outfit for the whole whole show. So right. Just a little thing from me. Yeah, I loved it. I noticed I noticed that stuff too. I thought it was great. Um, so let's move on to the second episode. So as you guys will probably notice going forward in season two and beyond, we're probably going to cover less episodes per podcast episode because there's a lot more to talk about as we just evidence by spending all this time talking about the first one that we're doing today but we're doing two today so this is episode two the cave of two lovers um which has a slightly different feel than the opener i freaking love this episode (laughs) one of my favorite episodes pretty much in the entire show it's so good (laughs) well mike it was um, messaging me before I had seen them, and he's like, I know you haven't seen them yet, but when you see them, there's a certain song that's stuck in my head, and you'll know which song it is. <laughs> and then later on, I got to it finally, and then I messaged him back, and I was like, Secret Tunnel! <laughs> and that was it. Yeah. I've been singing that all week. <sighs> oh, so good. And randomly, Don't too. let the cave-in get you down, sucker. <laughs> <laughs> because he's like saying two lovers <laughs> like and then he's like and I don't remember how the rest of the song goes but the chorus goes <laughs> we're getting ahead of ourselves though I know okay 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 so let's recap right on on the road our friends meet a troop of traveling bards who become their somewhat inept guides through a twisting labyrinth known as the cave of two lovers Katara and Aang are separated from the group and consider kissing to find their way out but they find their answer in the darkness 
Meanwhile, Iroh accidentally poisons himself, and rather than face Azula, he and Zuko seek help from a young woman from the Earth Kingdom named Song. Through her kindness, Zuko is forced to face a side of the war that he's never contemplated before. Very good. Yes. Yes. So, these bards are high, right? They're hippies. hippies. Well, the guy's name is Chong. (laughs) I'm pretty sure Cheech and Chong were on the menu when they wrote this. My notes was, his name is Chong. Of course it is. Right. Like, I know it's a kid's show, but yeah. Yeah. Um, Which is, I mean, so a lot of this episode is comic relief, and a lot of it comes from um, this you know, kind of group of traveling bards and Sokka's frustration with them. Um, you know, I'll, every quote that I have listed from the whole episode is basically from that section. <laughs> you know, like, oh, are we all having ideas? Because I've had an idea for like an hour now. <laughs> <laughs> oh, oh, and so like great. when the Fire Nation is going to go in there and they're like, it's too dangerous. Haven't you heard the song? So rather than just quote the whole thing, um, again, this episode is kind of two parts, our heroes and then Zuko and Iroh. So our heroes um, are traveling along and they're going to, you know, they're trying to get to Omashu. Um, They end up kind of being forced to take this cave, this labyrinth, in order to avoid the Fire Nation. They go, they can't really find their way, the maps aren't helping, the labyrinth seems to be changing as they go into it, the singers are singing really annoying songs the whole time, (laughs) and they're also just, like, really dumb, like, they have all these torches and they try lighting them all at once, and Sokka's like, that's not how this works, (laughs) like, just (laughs) lots of, lots and lots of comic relief happening. What's like the fortune teller episode when they're like, can your science explain how, explains why it rains? And he's like, Yes! Yes, it can. It can. Yeah. (laughs) So a lot of that kind of stuff, and it's all really, really great. Um, And eventually, Aang and Katara are separated. There's a cave-in, and they're separated. And so Sokka is stuck with the troop of singers on one side. Because of course he is. And Katara, I know. And (laughs) Aang, Katara, and Appa are on the other side. And so... Aang and Katara are wandering around with Appa trying to find their way out. They find a seal that looks like it might lead to the outside. Appa breaks through it, and it's not a door to the outside. It's a tomb. And there are pictures on the wall that tell the story of the two people that are buried there. um, And they are the two lovers from the title. And the animation switches while we tell this part of the story. And it's really beautifully done. Yeah, it's really, it's really beautifully done. They do it in other things too. I know in um, Harry Potter they do it for the Tale of Three Brothers, and yeah. um, I know they do it in some other things as well. It's really effective, and Katara kind of narrates the story for us as we watch this animation. But it was essentially a man and a woman from rival villages who are the first Earthbenders. And they are taught earthbending by the badger moles, and they create this underground labyrinth so that they can meet in secret without anyone from their villages knowing. And it's kind of like a Romeo and Juliet, you know, forbidden love sort of a thing. Um, 
And so they continue to meet there, and they're very happy, and then one day the man does not arrive, and he has been killed in the fight between their two villages. And the woman um, reveals her bending powers to everyone, but rather than destroy the villages, she declares the fight to be over and um, has them unite in peace. And her name was Oma, Oma, and her lover's name was Shu, and so that's where the name of the town of Oma Shu comes from. Um, and they were buried, you know, in this cave. And it's a really lovely story. Um, the animation, as we said, is really lovely. And so after having come across this information, Aang and Katara are kind of trying to figure out, okay, so how do we get out of here and what can we take, you know, from this story? And it, you know, kind of the final line in the story is something like... Um, Love is brightest in the dark. In the darkness. Mm-hmm. And so they're trying to puzzle out what does that mean. And then, of course, it's the cave of two lovers, and there's an, a carving of them in the wall of the two of them kissing. And so Katara's like, do you think if we kiss, we'd be able to get out? And it's a pretty ridiculous suggestion. <laughs> But there's lots of feelings there, and Aang kind of is like, goes through all of this, like, ooh, kissing, and then it's like, oh, wait, I can't, you know, I have to repress that, and no, and what? So he, of course, offends Katara with his, um, with trying so hard not to make himself appear eager to kiss her. He goes overboard and ends up insulting her. That whole exchange, I had to write it down, because he's like, uh, I definitely wouldn't want to kiss you. And of course, Katara gets offended. She's like, well, fine. He's like, no, no, if it was a choice between kissing you and dying, and I'd rather... dying? <laughs> and she's yeah. like, oh. And then he's like, no, I'm saying I'd rather kiss you than die. It's a compliment. It's a compliment. <laughs> I was like, oh, hey. <laughs> so funny so funny but their you know their torches are getting lower and lower and lower and they're getting closer and closer and closer and then everything fades to black and then these lights illuminate in the ceiling that lead to the outside and that's how they get out but we're in the dark for a moment before that happens and it's, you know, after when when the lights illuminate and they're kind of finding their way out, Aang is kind of like, hey, can we talk about what, and Katara just kind of like walks away and they don't talk about whatever it is that they need to talk about. So is this the first kiss? Did this happen? I think it happened. Yeah. So the showrunners did leave it ambiguous on purpose. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. They're well, expert sure. ship trollers is what they are. Um, but they did say that they do consider this the first time Katara and Aang kissed. Mm-hmm. So, uh, they, yeah. word of God says, yes, they did kiss in the cave. <laughs> Aww. Yeah. yeah I agree. Cute. I'm still whatever, but it's cute. <laughs> it is cute. And, well, especially, like, you know, because the first season, it's clear, I think it's clear he has a crush on Katara, but it's kind of, like, cute, kind of puppy mm-hmm. love. But now in this season's a little bit different. I think the dynamic's a little bit different. It is a little bit different. 
And I just, you know, because there's that scene in the beginning where Katara is teaching him how to waterbend. And, you know, yeah. she's, like, coming yes. around and, like, fixing it's his posture. It's the classic pool. Form. Let me show you how to shoot pool. Move. Yeah, yeah. Like, <laughs> and then his, his and... face turns so red. He's just like, hey. <laughs> it's so cute and awkward. Mm-hmm. There's, I don't yeah. know. I think they're cute. I think they're, I think it's cute. I think they're Sweet. cute. I, do, I don't dislike it. I think it's adorable. Um... You know, I'm not like hardcore shipping it, but it's it is very cute, and I thought it was um, and I thought it was nicely done. The whole the whole thing was really cute and funny. Um, I also so, yeah. feel like we're maybe learning more, or they're learning more water bending this season than they did last, last season. season. I yeah. agree. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, we all know how I feel about all that. I did have a question. That I realized I forgot to bring up in our season finale discussion, which is now irrelevant because it's not there anymore. But in those final, that final episode, Katara has like a new symbol on her shirt. It's like a moon symbol or something. It's a glowing, it's a round thing. I think it's a symbol of the Northern Water Tribe because their symbol is a moon with like squiggly lines for water. Okay. And that's the symbol I of the Northern Water Tribe. We get it. She she has it on only in that episode when we learn that she's now really super great, like she's a prodigy. And so I thought it might be like a level distinct, like a badge or something that she earns for being at a certain level or something. But then it goes away and we haven't seen it since then. It so. probably is, but also like, because she's wearing like such heavy winter gear and, but yeah, I know what you mean. Like she's wearing that symbol and I thought the same thing you did too, that it was just a mark that she had achieved the rank of master. Mm-hmm. Um, but you know, yeah, like his tattoos or something, but then it's she doesn't still have it, and so I was like, oh. But that was last season. I forgot to mention it, but then I noticed that she doesn't have it, or at least not yet, um, now. So I don't know if that was a design. It didn't look great, to be honest. <laughs> it looked a little weird, and so it may have been like a design thing where they were like, no, nah, we don't really like that. We're going to get rid of that in season <clears> two. I don't know. But uh, but it's not there now. But yes, much more waterbending happening now in the Earth chapter than ever happened in the water chapter. <laughs> Which, and it's cooler okay. water bending too. It's like it is. Well, all the bending continues to be impressive. You know, as it goes along, more and more things um, are really, really interesting to see what they do with it. So I liked that. That is pretty much all I have to say about the cave plot. I'd love to hear what you guys have to say about it. Um, I thought it was funny. I thought it was cute. Uh, you know, mostly character stuff, mostly cute little, you know, things. It was interesting to see the legend about the origin of earthbending. That, which is funny that you mentioned and compared it to Romeo and Juliet, because my reference when I saw it is actually a Chinese folktale called The Cowherd and the Weaver Girl. I don't know if you know that story, but essentially, no. it's a myth about the Milky Way. Um, so the star Altair and the star Vega are connected. Like, they're on opposite sides of the Milky Way. So it's about a cowherd and a weaver girl who cannot be together, except once a year when a, a flock of magpies creates a bridge across, and that's when they're able to be together. So, like, when people think of star-crossed lovers or forbidden love in the West, they think of Romeo and Juliet. In the East, they would tend to think of this story, which is the cowherd and the weaver girl, uh, which is 
kind of where I went first. And I was like, oh, yeah, it's kind of like Romeo and Juliet. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, it was interesting. I mean, it was a really, that whole section of the episode was great. The story was great. The animation was beautiful. Um, I don't know what style you would call it, but it has, it had that paintbrush quality, you know, very similar to what you'd think of, like, Chinese characters being written. In um, Japanese, that style of, of writing and painting is called sumi-e, um, and it's just mm. kind of water, basically like watercolor, but like ink. You know? Yeah. Yeah, so it was really beautiful. I really liked that part. Oh, but, uh, the end of the song, <laughs> when they were in, and then once they had been <laughs> separated into two groups, and uh, Chong remembers the end of the song was, and die. <laughs> It's so all the songs are so good. Don't let the cave in get you down. <laughs> or the the one when the badger will show up. He he like whips out like his spare guitar that he just like had in his back pocket or whatever, and he's like the great big badger mole. <laughs> and Sokka, who's just very tunelessly being like, "Help me out, guys!" Right? Yeah. <laughs> I thought that was great too. It was a great Sokka episode. It was really funny. Well, I just but love also the very the, end. The, um, Wolf bat giant flying teeth oh, thing right, with teeth. <laughs> right, so uh, when they first went into the cave before um, the Fire Nation, you know, blew up the entrance and sealed them in, there were, I mean, they didn't receive any attention, but there were um, a bunch of statues lining the entrance of the cave that I think were supposed to be wolf bat headed warriors. They had like, like one had a short sword and one had a spear and one had like a like oh. into, you know, like a pole with a blade on the end. Yeah, naginada. Yeah. Um, I didn't actually notice that, but I think you're right. I just assumed they were, like, demons, but, you know, because, like, weird animal head and human body, but... Right. I think, yeah, I think you're right. I think they're wolf, I think they're wolf bats with human bodies. <laughs> yeah. Really and also, cool. just the concept of wolf bats is pretty upsetting. The... Yeah. yeah. Pretty much all the animals in this show upset me. <laughs> I mean, some of them are cute. Like, I think, obviously, I think Appa is adorable. and Well, yes. Um, and the badger moles, I thought, were kind of cute. They're not, like, yeah. terrifyingly... They're not, like... Basically, it's the face... It's the face of the wolf bat that's just like, oh. Yeah. Yeah, that was not great. And I also mm. just noticed in my notes, there's one other line from this section that I loved where um, Chong is like... You know, the way all you need to survive the caves is love. The little guy knows it. And Aang's like, yeah, but I wouldn't mind a map either. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Um, So then we have the second half of the episode, which is Iroh and Zuko seeking help from the Earth Kingdom. So Iroh, like the lovable, ridiculous, lazy, food-loving guy that he is, finds a plant that is either the best tea ever or super poisonous, and of course decides to risk it in case it's tea, and it turns out to be super poisonous, and... Um, you know, this is that moment like we that we'd mentioned earlier when they're like, well, if you know we go to the Fire Nation, they're going to turn us over to Azula, and if we go to the Earth Kingdom, they're going to kill us. 
Earth, Earth Kingdom. Kingdom it is. <laughs> right. <laughs> just the way Zuko delivers that, too. It's just like, yep, mm-hmm. Earth Kingdom it is. <laughs> and also, I have to say, I really like Zuko's new haircut. <laughs> it grew out fast. It did. It did grow out fast. It did grow out fast. But it makes him look like such a... It makes him look younger. He looks like a boy. And I think in this episode, particularly, that serves him really well in terms of like the emotional stuff that he's processing. So they go to the Earth Kingdom and they find a young woman named Song who is going to help them and, you know, cures Iroh of the poison and whatever. And there's like, you know, a whole really hilarious um, thing where Iroh continues to be the best troll where Zuko's like, yes, we are travelers. I am... Uh, like I forget, I am Lee or Ling or something, and Ling my is uncle Lee. is Mushi Lee. And he's like, this is this is Mushi, and Iroh just kind of looks at him and goes, "Yeah, we call him Junior." Right. Yes. <laughs> 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 most epic trolling that uh, Iroh continues to do, and so Song invites them for dinner, and Zuko's like, "Now nah, we gotta get going," and uh, Iroh's like, "Where do you live exactly?" Because yeah, I'm no, down for the some roast like, duck. You know, you could come over for dinner. My mother always makes too much roast duck. And then mm-hmm. that's when Ira's like, so where do you live exactly? <laughs> I feel like roast duck is like the trump card in this world because it's like Scooby Snacks to Ira. <laughs> that and yeah. tea. Tea, tea, oh, yeah, tea, tea and also duck, helps. I think, are the two things that... I just love, too, because like, he's sitting in front of this plant, and, and of course Zuko's off in the background worrying about what they're going to eat, and he's like, fine, I'm just going to go fishing. And that revealed, too, like he's got this long stick with a fish on the end, but it's like, as the camera pans out, you see this fish is like this big. It's like this yeah, tiny it's little a fish on the end. <laughs> but it's also like Zuko, I mean, not Zuko, Iroh's sitting for the plant, and he's like, delectable tea or deadly poison? <laughs> And I just feel like this whole dilemma just sums up life in general. Like everything, mm-hmm. everything Iroh says, I'm just like, I feel you. I feel you on a soul <laughs> level. Iroh. Perhaps that should be a proverb. <laughs> <laughs> Your ship is heading out of port. <laughs> um, so yeah, it's really great. And so they go to Song's house and eat with her family, her mother, and. It's really difficult for Zuko at first because I think he is concerned about protecting their identity and he is worried that they're going to be found out and he wants to get moving. And then over the course of the meal and the rest of the evening, I think he's a little bit disarmed by their kindness and by the connections that he has with them. So while they're sitting down for dinner, the topic of fathers comes up and Zuko is like, you know, oh, I haven't seen my father in a long time. And Song is like, oh, me neither. Is your father fighting the war? And Zuko's like, yes. <laughs> He's fighting in the war. <laughs> to put it mildly. Which is, you know, kind of a a strange moment for him to realize like, yes, both of our fathers are fighting in the war on opposite sides. And my father isn't fighting in it so much as controlling it and ruining everyone's lives, essentially. Um, 
Yeah, yes, exactly. Yeah, his dad is the one waging and the war. And then, you know, there's another moment when Zuko leaves and he's sitting outside and Song comes out and says, you know, oh, can I join you? And she reaches out to touch the scar on Zuko's face and he stops her and she says, oh, it's okay. You know, I understand the Fire Nation has hurt you. They've hurt me too. And she pulls up her pant leg to reveal burn scars on her legs. And again, it's that connection where they've both been burned by the Fire Nation, literally, and yet are still on such opposite sides of this conflict. And it, I think it humanizes something for Zuko and it, it forces him to confront the real tangible effects that this is having on people's lives and people who are from the nations that are being persecuted and attacked. And it's probably something that he's never had to think about before. We've seen him show concern for his own people and for the Fire Nation casualties that will result in these acts of war. So we've seen him be compassionate towards his own people, but this could very easily be the first time that he's forced to face the realities of the fact that war has more than one side and other people who are not his people are being hurt and that it's his father's fault. And it, you know, we don't, we don't see him come to any conclusions about that, but we see him sit with it and be made uncomfortable by it. And again, for a children's show, everybody drink. This is just such a <laughs> nuanced and complicated and compelling storyline to put in there. I mean, it's just... I think also the strength of the animation, and particularly mm. the way Zuko is animated, because we've said before he doesn't no. actually say much at all. But so much of Zuko is in how he's animated, his facial expressions, his body language, and that whole scene at dinner, and then kind of afterwards, no. he doesn't say much at all. But you can see there's like tension everywhere, and he's just kind of, you know, not wanting to connect to these people yet being charmed sort of nonetheless and then he sits you know at the very end when song comes out and says i've been burned too the mm-hmm. look on his face that he gives her just this like oh it, it killed me and it, it just it killed me he was it just i just love the way zuko's story is so i hate to say it over and over again it's complex you know it just there's so much about him that he's learning and he's growing and changing as a character and you really just want to root for him and sympathize with him. And then, of course, he backslides at the end when he steals their yeah. bird horse thingy. Yeah. And But I, I love that, too, because he's not just going to have a change of heart mm, yes. right away. You know, he's not just yeah, going to see one thing. And I love that, He is too. who he is. He's, he's, yeah. he's learning and he's... Yeah, he's learning and he's yeah. changing and he's growing and he's, you know, he's seeing things and he's slowly starting to shift here and there, but he still he still has a mission, which is I want to get in my father's good graces and I'm going to get the avatar to do so. So he sees this bird horse thingy and says, mm-hmm. "Well, I'm going to take that because we need it." And doesn't really give a thought. Even though Iroh says, "You know, what are you doing?" 
um, Zuko's like, well, you know, you know, they've been so kind to us, and he just says they can be a little more, they can be a little kinder, yeah. and I'm just like, oh god, ouch. Yeah. And she sees it. Yeah, and she sees it. Song is looking on the entire time. And she, she doesn't sees... say anything. She just yeah. closes the door and was like, all right, fine. I just, uh, it's so good. I started weeping again while JJ was talking, guys. I was like, <laughs> <laughs> I just. We're getting pretty drunk not, over here, Cal. Stop <laughs> making us drink. We need to release, like, the drinking game rules with <laughs> this podcast. Uh, <laughs> Anytime Kelly cries, I mean, pretty much, drink. yeah. Pretty much, yeah. I wonder at this point, now that I've started crying at all the Zuko storylines, are we ever going to hit an episode about Zuko which doesn't make me cry? Either during the watching or again during the recaps? I mean, we're just talking about it now and I'm just like, ah. No. 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 I'm pretty sure we'll just get more episodes where you cry <laughs> just about more other, crying. other characters. In just addition yeah. to Zuko. Okay. I am right. a crier. This is not unusual Yeah, in for addition me. to Zuko, there but, will be more yeah. tears. Um, oh, speaking of which, uh, I'm not, I didn't cry, but it, I found it upsetting how stressed out Appa was yeah. underground. Oh, no. And and then he has that freak out because the torch like hits him in the foot, and that's what causes the yeah, cave-in for them to and all get separated even says in the beginning, no, we're going to fly but, because Appa doesn't like to be underground. And then they have that quick shot of them flying and like being attacked right. and screaming. And so they go under. But yeah, poor Appa. And then when he gets out of the cave, what I love is that he just says, uh. Yeah, he does this big flop. <laughs> flop, like, oh, sweet air. Like, if he could talk, I think that's exactly what he would say. And <laughs> when Momo gets out, he, like, reports yes! to Appa. They have this, like, conversation. Like, yeah, he's, like, chittering back and forth between between the two of them and, like, telling each other about what it was like in their tunnel so in the cave, I guess. I don't know. Yeah, what, what they went through. Uh, um, I guess one oh, thing then, about this... Okay, go ahead. I was just going to say, and then once they do get out of there and they finish up their journey, they make it over the crest of a mountain to see the city of Omashu, finally. And what do they find? But it is draped in Fire Nation flags. under their control. So a lot has changed since the last time we were there. Right. I thought that was such a great reveal because, you know, they've gotten through the cave and they're going up, you know, and they're marching. And they're like, it's over the next hill. And the other thing, too, is we've already been there. We've been to Amashu already in the last season. So we're, we have this kind of expectation of what we're going to see. And then the way Sokka's like, there it is. Oh, yeah. my gosh. And this reveal of the city and it's just swathed in Fire Nation colors and it's like, burning or on fire or something um and so it just really kind of takes a even darker turn because like i said this show is pretty dark to begin with um but oh going back to the moment where uh, to song uh she's clearly yes. dressed in korean clothes and like she's wearing a hanbok and and the like the structure of the building she's in is very cr- clearly korean as well um, but I also thought it was funny because she had bangs, <laughs> which I don't think any mm-hmm. other character in the show has bangs. I don't think I don't think that's. <laughs> I thought you were going to say I don't think anyone in Korea has bangs. <laughs> no, it's bangs just not are part popular, of the culture, Korea. guys. They just they don't get <laughs> that's down with really bangs. Funny. I did actually notice that that style of dress was from Korea because um, David's cousin recently married a Korean woman, and. Um, 
a lot of his family members were just over there for their wedding ceremony. And in a lot of the pictures, guests or other people are wearing similar um, clothing. And so I actually recognized that. I was like, oh, this must be a Korea thing. Or evoking that. It seems to be pretty fluid from place to place um, with Asian cultures, which I think is really interesting. And I always love when you tell us more about them because, unfortunately, I don't have any knowledge of that myself. And so hearing you kind of pick out which ones um, are influenced by different cultures is always one of my favorite parts of our discussions. Yeah, I mean, I think the gist is basically that the Earth Kingdom is so huge. Because it, mm-hmm. it is. It's the biggest nation or kingdom on the map. So it just kind of spans all these, like, smaller subcultures, I guess. Um, so I, I always I thought that was pretty cool, too. Um, there are, They do a lot of research into it because there's actually a specific direction. The Like, you know how, like, yeah. most Asian clothes have a thing? There's, like, a specific direction it's supposed to go over. Um, because if you do it the opposite way, you do that for a body as you dress it for a funeral. <laughs> so, oh. But all of them go the same direction because that's the correct direction. Nice. And they're very meticulous about this. Um, and I've noticed that, too. Um, and it, probably because it mm-hmm. is actually animated in Korea. Um, it's it, Not most of it was. I think it was storyboarded at Nick and then sent to Korea. And I know one of the showrunners went to Seoul for about three to six months, I think, before season one, they were working on the animation there. Um, they had a documentary oh, about nice. that in the DVD. After extras. we finish the show, I should really hunt down all that extra stuff and watch it, because it all sounds fascinating. Yeah. I want to see that documentary. I didn't know that was a thing. Yeah, it, it's pretty cool. Um, they just sort of talked about their favorite characters and what it is, because they they get the story, but they're, it's, they're less concerned about matching the mouth to what's yeah. being said so much as the emotion. And the acting. So I don't know if you guys are that familiar with the process of acting, or not acting, animating. They call the sort of references they do, like you'll see like animators, and I have one, a mirror on their desk that they're looking into and they're making their own facial expressions and copying it down. Um, The same thing with action references, but also any emotional references. And there's also in the extras, you'll see the creator doing Mm -hmm. references for different things, like (laughs) lettuce leaf. (laughs) Or oh, right. <laughs> he's like on on the bed as Momo. He's got like a pillow stuffed up his shirt, so his like stomach's distended. He's just like, and, <laughs> like, and mm-hmm. those are filmed references that the animators themselves do, and then send to the animators in Korea to kind of refer to when they're doing the animation themselves. Yeah. So it's it's pretty cool if you are into it. <laughs> I noticed a few of those. I, I mean, we're not there, obviously, but there are a few like pretty noticeable examples in Legend of Korra where it's like, that was clearly a human being that they filmed and then just animated right over it. Like, there's this one in particular where, I think Cora, I don't forget who she's even talking to. One. Yeah, it's, exactly. She, it's she she's talking the, to Lynn. <laughs> right, she's pointing at her eyes, she's and then like, she points at Lynn like, I'm watching you, one of those kinds of things. And then like, Lynn just goes... Right. <laughs> but that's clearly a, a reference, and it is. It's Brian Konitzko. <laughs> is it? Yes. That's really funny. <laughs> don't know what you're talking about. <laughs> um. Anyways, back to this show. We'll yeah, get to Cora. We'll, we'll get to Cora. We'll get to Cora. But anyway, um, yeah, I had just a couple of other things, which mm-hmm. were just like the funny parts. I just loved the way this episode ended. Obviously, the big reveal of Omashu, but they come out, you know, and 
They're like, they finally, they're reunited, and Sokka's like, how did you get out? And Aang is just very cutely and coyly like, we let love lead the way. And then Sokka's just like, really? We just let huge, ferocious beasts lead our way. Right. <laughs> <laughs> they rode him out of the tunnels. Yeah, and then and then Katara is hugging her brother, and then she's like, Sokka, why is your forehead all red? And then Chong comes up, and he's like, don't say anything, anyone, but I think that kid's the Avatar. And then Sokka just... Holmes the handprint. You can see that's where that red mark comes from. Yeah. Oh, it's so good. So funny. Oh, so Sokka, funny. I love you. This was really, it was really comedic. And those songs will be stuck in my head forever. Yeah. Me too. And yep. die. <laughs> that, is, that in particular, because like something about just the way he sang it made me think of, did you guys ever see the original Hobbit movie, yes. the animated one? That was, oh, the Rankin-Bass one? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, like a lot of those songs like had parts to it that sounded exactly like that. Like, in the Misty Mountain and die. <laughs> we can just add that to everything now. <laughs> Penelope, eat your dinner or die. <laughs> Right. <laughs> Penelope's my kid. I would not actually kill her if she didn't eat her dinner. But, you know, just disclaimers. But she would sing to her. I would. I do sing to her. Well, she makes up songs all by herself all the time that are essentially like this because she's a toddler, so she doesn't quite get like tone or like like she knows she needs to move her voice up and down, but like she doesn't have like an innate sense of musicality yet. But she sings for everything because we are a musical family. We listen to music. We sing a lot, you know, whatever. So she does that for everything. And she's like, she makes up songs about putting her toys away or like waiting for the bus, but they're all really like atonal and weird. And it's like, put back all your things, put back all your <laughs> things. It's like, but she's just singing to herself, whatever. Anyway, uh, that's a good cool story. Cal. Thanks. <laughs> It actually wasn't a bad story. I didn't mind. I also just like the way the hippies are animated. Like, the way Chong is wearing his robe, he just has, like, one arm out of its yeah. sleeve. Did you notice that? It's just, like, draped this way. He He's is got, like, so one arm out. high, you guys. Yeah, he is. <laughs> And the little like weedy mustache that he's got going, and like, and then like the other members of their band, like one of the women who's not his wife, who's just constantly <laughs> dancing. Like. I referred to all the women in the, the two women that, or whatever he was with as the Janice of their Doctor Teeth and the Electric Mayhem. Nice. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, and the other one, the guy who whose only line was to like bust Sokka's balls, was named Moku, which yeah. is like exactly the kind of name you want to be like, shut the fuck up, Moku. Yeah, pretty much. <laughs> oh, so good. Yeah, this is definitely one of my favorite episodes in the show. I think it has a nice balance of comedy and character development, and it also moves the plot along mm -hmm. at the end. Yeah. So, with Zuko, too, it moves the plot along on Zuko's point, and it moves his character development along. Um, you get a little bit of backstory about where... So, I, I, I tend to think of The Cave of Two Lovers as kind of like a really fantastically constructed episode that has a little bit of absolutely everything that you would want. Mm-hmm. So. Yeah. That's all I got on my end. Yeah, me too. What? Um, 
I can do the voice folk. Mm-hmm. Who, um, who are the hippies? <laughs> oh, uh, so um, Lily, the, I guess, wife of um, Chong, is voiced by Lorraine Newman, who is one of the original cast members. Uh, she starred in 103 episodes of the original Saturday Night Live. Oh. She was, yeah, she was one of the not ready for primetime players. Um, she does a bunch of background voices in Pixar movies, and she plays Pickles' mom on Metalocalypse. <laughs> okay. <laughs> um, Moku is voiced by someone named Derek Bosco, who... Ah, I saw his credits in, in the end of the show, and I was like... Yeah, sibling to Dante, who is Zuko. Zuko, yeah. Um, his, uh, his biggest credit that I could find was three episodes of The Guild... And he played Roy. <laughs> um, Chong is voiced by our very own D. Bradley Baker, who is the voice oh, of Appa okay. and Momo. Nice. Yeah, I was really <laughs> thrilled when I found that. I was like, man, that is, he like did a great job on that guy. Oh, that's so good. Um, and then the other two are Song and her mom. Um, I guess I'll do, okay, so Song's mother is Barbara Goodson, who. Has, she did a voice in Fooly Cooly. Uh, she did a voice in Naruto as Chio. She was Red Fraggle in the cartoon of the Fraggle Rock. And she was the American voiceover for Rita Repulsa in the original <laughs> Power Rangers show. Okay, then. And lastly, yeah, uh, is Kim, my guest, who played Song. She does Mei Ling in Metal Gear Solid. She's... Dot Hack is another game that she's in. Uh, she plays a character named Subaru. She's voiced Kitty Pride for a bunch of Marvel games. She was in Mass Effect as Captain Maiko Matsuo. And she's voiced Eowyn in a few different Lord of the Rings video games. Oh, very cool. Yeah. And that is awesome. everybody. Nice. Yeah, I just wanted to know who Chong was because he was so good. Yeah. Sokka, I think you're just letting the destination get in the way of your journey. (laughs) (laughs) That wraps up this week's installment of the Earth Kingdom Prairie Home Companion. Next time, we'll be covering episodes three and four from season two, which are Return to Omashu and The Swamp. So be sure to tune in for newbie recaps, know-it-all nerdery, and general squeeing all around. As always, you can subscribe to us via iTunes, Stitcher, SoundCloud, or your podcast provider of choice, or visit us at our website, earthkingdomradio.com. And if you like us, please rate and review when you get a chance, as it helps other listeners find the podcast. You can follow me, Kelly, at Bookish Chick on Twitter or Instagram. You can follow me, Mike, at Robo underscore Pants on Twitter. And you can follow me, JJ, at SJJones, that's S-J-A-E-J-O-N-E-S on Twitter, or my website, sjjones.com. Our theme music is Cattails by Kevin McLeod, and our logo was designed and created by our very own JJ. Thanks so much for listening. Bye. 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 Bye.